Welcome to the class, which is God, His People, and the Poor. And some of you have heard this and remember this, but this is also simultaneously deacon training. And tonight is the most oriented toward flat-out deacon training of all the nights, and you're all supposed to be here. Uh, One of the things that happens in the Bible over and over again, you might remember when you get to Ephesians 5, and anytime a pastor says Ephesians 5 in a room where people that are biblically literate, uh, husbands and wives get nervous because we know that Ephesians 5 is one of the marriage passages. But if you've noticed, when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he writes a letter to the whole church, and he addresses the wives first and then the husbands but he addresses the wives in the presence of all their husbands. And when Paul says to the husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, all their wives are supposed to be sitting there hearing this letter right at the same time. And when Paul, and it's interesting, Paul actually addresses the children first and the parents. And when Paul says, parents, obey your parents in the Lord for this, you know, the first command with a promise, uh, Paul knows that all the parents are sitting there listening to the children be addressed. And then when God says to the parents how to relate to their children, he knows the children in the room and so are everyone else's parents. So this is the most deacon-oriented deacon training night of this lesson, and it's really good that it's not just deacons in the room, because our own book of church order says that a really good and wise thing for sessions to do is to look for and appoint men and women to assist the diaconate. So we're going to get into that tonight. So let me open in prayer, and then we're going to look at Acts 6, 1 through 7 together before we break into our teams. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for addressing us as your people. Thank you for addressing us in the scriptures way more often as a corporate family, a people set apart by you for your glory even then as you address individuals. Help us learn to hear your word for us, your church. Help us grow in corporate maturity. Help us understand that in your wisdom, you give us unique roles so that your church as a whole will be healthy, so that we'll be on mission with you, bringing honor to your name, seeing our neighbors converted to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, bearing the gospel near and far. Bless us tonight as we look into your word, into Acts chapter 6. Open our eyes to see beautiful, wonderful, stirring truth in your word. Shape us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, Acts 6, 1 through 7 is the passage we're going to look at tonight. I'm going to do my best to keep us on time. I'm going to kind of zoom so that you get, you get your team time at the end. Um, so if you'll look in your week six study, uh, inside where it says week six, the, 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 the diaconate, the church and God's mission, we just did the opening prayer, and then Acts 6, 1 through 7 is printed there for you. Does anyone not have their sheets for tonight? If you don't have them, they're over here, and Brian wants to help you find them because he's got them in his hand. Okay, super. Um. So if you were here on Sunday and you heard John Fountain's excellent sermon about the spreading of the word, um, this is the first passage that has that summary in it. 
Interestingly, if you were here two weeks ago, we were told that the Holy Spirit was going to fall on the apostles and those with them, and that the the apostles in the early church were going to be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Well, you get to Acts chapter, that's Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You get to chapter 6, they're still in Jerusalem. <laughs> they're going to get outside of Jerusalem, mostly because of persecution. Um, but in Acts 6, they're still in Jerusalem. And before I read the passage, let me just give this background. Um, if you remember from Acts chapter 1 and 2, we're told that when, when Pentecost happened, when the Spirit was poured out by Jesus, the ascended Jesus, onto his church... There were people from lots of different, there were Jews from a lot of nations around Israel who were in Jerusalem at that time. And, and 10 nations are listed there. And so well, here's what we know about those people. A lot of them would have been in their latter years of life, many of them, not all of them. They would have grown up as di- diaspora Jews, which means they didn't grow up in Jerusalem Uh, or in Judea, probably not even Samaria, but they grew up in the countries around there. And all that region would have been greatly shaped by the Greek language and by Greek culture. In Acts 6, because these people had moved to Jerusalem, the Spirit falls on the church. Remember, they're talking about Jesus, and people are hearing truth about Jesus in all these different languages that they're familiar with because they've lived in these different parts of the Greek empire, right? And so what we're told is 3,000 people became believers that first day when uh, Peter preached that first sermon. And then we're told in chapter 4 and chapter 5, the church is just, and 2, the church is just growing and growing and the church is multiplying. So lots of people are getting converted. So here's the important background for understanding this passage. They're in Jerusalem still, and it's already a very culturally diverse church. Now, it won't sound diverse when I describe it at first. They're all brand new Christians. We're in the shadow of Pentecost. They're all Jews who were brand new Christians. But here's the cultural diversity. The majority of them are Hebraic Jews who've recently converted to believe Jesus is their Messiah. And the others are Hellenistic Jews. That is the Jews that grew up in the diaspora and they're, they're, they're culture is shaped more by the Greek language and the cultures that they grew up in. They were Jews that would have gone to synagogue, but they didn't grow up in the heavily dominated Hebrew culture of Judaism. Everybody understand that? How many, how many of these converts were Jewish? All of them. But there's diversity inside this new church. There are Hebrew-speaking, native Hebrew-speaking. We grew up in the vicinity of Jerusalem Jew-Jew-Jews who are new Christians, and then they're the Greek-speaking Jews uh, who are way less Jewish, though they are Jewish, who are new Christians. And that's the background for the passage. Here we go, Acts 6, 1-7. through Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the gospel's going gangbuster, and people are getting converted left and right. The disciples are increasing in number. There are more and more people believing in Jesus. A complaint by the Hellenists. Okay, raise your hand if you're surprised that as the church grows, complaints show up. Thank you. You're right. That's not a surprise. Okay, so the church is growing, and a complaint by the Hellenists, that is the culturally Greek Jewish new Christians, a complaint from them rose against the Hebrews 
This does not mean Jews that aren't Christians. This is the culturally Jewish new Christians. Because their widows, that is the Hellenist, Greek-speaking, culturally Greek Jewish new Christians, are being neglected in the daily distribution. All right, before we move on, just note this. No one was asking, should we take care of widows? They were all taking care of widows. No one was asking, should we do this consistently and regularly? They were doing a daily distribution. The problem was not mercy ministry. But there was a problem. There was the dominant group, the majority, were the Hebrew-speaking Jews. And they were in their neck of the woods in Jerusalem. There was a minority group, and it was the minority group's widows that were being neglected. Part of that would have been cultural barriers. Part of that would have been normal human nature. But mercy was happening, but mercy wasn't happening with great equity and great justice. And that's the problem that the apostles were addressing. Okay, so look what happened. Verse 2, and the 12, so that's, this is the place in Acts after chapter 1 that the apostles are called the 12. The 12 summoned the full number of the disciples, that's all the new believers, and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. The verb there is the same word that in English comes into deacon. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. Look at the characteristics, two of them, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. You pick them, we'll appoint them. But we, here's the big priority for the apostles, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Did that, does that, the verse, verses 2, 3, and 4 mean that the apostles thought that taking care of widows was a low priority? Not at all. They had the, the central focus of their calling as apostles, and they understood that the enemy was attacking them, and they had to be men devoted to prayer and to announcing the gospel, preaching the word. And that was for them blocking and tackling. But because taking care of widows was such a high priority, and because doing that mercy with justice was such a high priority, they created a whole new group of leadership just to make sure it was done well. And they wanted seven men with a very good reputation who were full of the Spirit, men who clearly had soft hearts for Jesus and were in love with Jesus and his mission, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And what do you think the word full of wisdom means here in this context, since they need to administrate an important program? What do you think it means? People that know how to get things done. People that are practically minded. And if they, if they know, what, if someone says, hey, that's the mission, they know how to follow a process to achieve the mission. Now, this is going to shock you. It seems like in Acts 6, there are some kinds of people that are really good at big ideas and theology and prayer. And there's another kind of person that's good at execution. Have you ever recognized that there are these kinds of people in the world? One important takeaway from this passage is a gift from Jesus to the church to give us 
spirit-filled and wise men to lead in mercy ministry so that's done well and done justly, one of the gifts of that is, is that your pastors get to be devoted to prayer, praying for you and praying with you, and devoted to the ministry of the word, teaching you the scriptures and preaching the word of God to you. And that seems to be like a high priority. Okay, so that was the plan. We will devote ourselves, verse 4, to prayer and to the ministry of the word. At the end of verse 4 there, the ministry of the word, that's the same word as the ministry of tables up above in verse 2. We should not give up preaching the word of God to be table deacons because we're going to be deacons in this other way. We're going to serve in this other way. We're going to devote ourselves to prayer and the service of the word. Those words there are pretty much identical. Now here's the great news. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. See, the spirit was really operative of the church. They made a plan and it pleased everybody. Woo! And, and look what they did. They chose seven men and we have their names. Here's something interesting. The minority group, the subdominant group, are the Greek, the Hellenists, the Greek speakers, culturally Greek Jews who are recent converts. Guess how many of these seven names are Greek names versus Hebrew names? All seven. So they they are really committed to making sure the minority group doesn't get neglected. So when they choose seven men who have a good reputation and are full of the spirit and are full of the wisdom, they pull leaders out of the neglected minority group to make sure that everyone's needs are met. Now here's one more thing about this since we're in the month of February and we're careening, sprinting toward Missions Festival. Look with, look with me at, at the, there's two people who have a descriptor after their name. The first one, Stephen, he's a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Luke here is getting you ready for a really powerful story, right? In chapter 7, Stephen's going to preach that amazing story recounting the whole history of Israel and condemning them for rejecting their Messiah and saying, this is the way you've always been. And you remember what happens? Martyr. <laughs> Right, he's put to death, and there's there's two people that show there's two people that that give and receive honor. When they stone Stephen for preaching a very good sermon about the whole history of Israel and condemning them for rejecting their Messiah, they stone him, and those that take his life, they throw their cloaks down at the feet of a guy named Saul. They're showing him honor. They're saying, you're our boss. We know what you want to do. We've done it. And so they're showing Saul, who will become the Apostle Paul, great honor when they put Stephen to death. But there's another person that gives honor. Saul receives honor from the people putting Stephen to death. But here's how important and how wonderful faithfulness is. When Stephen is dying, he looks up and he sees the ascended Jesus Christ. He wasn't seated, but standing. The ascended Jesus Christ is showing honor to Stephen because he's being faithful unto death. Wonderful scene. And Luke here is preparing you for what's coming in the Acts narrative by just giving you Stephen's name first and a little description about him. And then there's five more names, but then the last person is named. And this is really interesting because Luke is narrating a story about God's mission. 
Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon. And if you raise kids, when I raise kids, you want to say Timon and Pumbaa. But it doesn't say Pumbaa. It says, and Parmenas. And here, the last person is named, and you have a descriptor. Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Here's why that's important. Now we're, no, we're told a proselyte means he actually converted to Judaism before he converted to Christianity. That's what Luke means here by a proselyte. He was a Gentile who became a Jew, and now he's believed in Jesus. So Luke is showing you the gospel is starting to convert the nations. And then he says, of Antioch. Why is that important? Because the first missionary trip sent out by the church to the Gentiles goes from Antioch. Luke here is preparing you to see the mission of God unfolding. Even in the, the something really simple. We, we, the apostles, we've got to be devoted to prayer and serving in the word. That's got to be what we're doing. And we've got to do mercy ministry. We've got to do it with wisdom and justice. That's got to be done. We cannot neglect the poor, and it must be done well. And Luke is showing you that in this little calling of these seven men and giving you their names, Luke is giving you a hint that this fits God's mission. What is unfolding is going to lead to the very things that God is planning and supplying through the work of the Spirit and the power of the gospel. And in case you don't believe me, look at verse 6. These they set before the apostles, these seven men, and they, the apostles, prayed and laid their hands on them. You guys selected them. We will appoint them. That's what happened. And look at the result. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And there's one other little note And a great many of the priests became believers, became obedient to the faith. Why do you think that is? There's one like obvious geographical reason that a lot of priests would get converted. What's that? They're in Jerusalem. That's right. That's where the temple is. There's always a lot of there's always a lot of priests um, in Jerusalem. But what is it about this narrative that got the attention of the priests? This is the only place in Acts where you hear that a lot of priests were converted. In the Old Covenant, it was every family's responsibility to take care of the poor. And one of the ways that you took care of the poor in the Old Covenant was to bring your tithe to the priest, and the priests administered mercy to the widow and the orphan and the sojourner and for whatever reason otherwise poor. So what you have is priests who know the scriptures well, they're seeing scripture come to fulfillment in a powerful way, and they're also seeing effective mercy ministry, widows who they would have been responsible for are being cared for in a really powerful way that crosses barriers, it's effective and powerful, and it leads to their, the Lord uses that to wake them up and to see that Jesus really is their Messiah. It's a pretty powerful scene. And so... Just to be repetitive, part of what's connected here in the narrative of Acts 6, 1 through 7, that leads to this explosion of conversions, the multiplication of disciples, is the apostles' determination to be devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word. 
and then effective ministry to the poor that doesn't marginalize second uh, uh, subdominant groups. Okay, so we're going to move from there and look at chapter 9. Uh, our BCO gives us a whole chapter about the work of the deacon, the office of the deacon. And I want you to see that it's wonderfully biblical. So we're going to zip through it right now because this is God, his people, and the poor. And it's also our deacon training for 2022. Okay, so here's the, the BCO, our book of church order, chapter 9, point 1. The office of the deacon is set forth in the scriptures as ordinary and perpetual in the church. The office is one of sympathy and service, not randomly, but after the example of the Lord Jesus. He's the model deacon. This office expresses also the communion of the saints. It expresses, it facilitates the koinonia, the shared life, shared mission aspect of being God's holy people, especially in their helping one another in time of need. Now, I'm going to commend Mark 1, 40 44 to you, where you see Jesus' example there, him being moved with pity, doing something great, and restoring a man to community. Um, And then I want to read Ephesians 4, 28 to you. Uh, Paul, once again, when he's addressing the whole church, he addresses uh, liars, (laughs) And one of the people that he addresses is thieves. And he says this, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Here's what I want you to see there. That's a developmental perspective. Someone is living a rebellious life, and that person apparently is attending the church at Ephesus. Right? Paul's not shocked by that. He's like, you need to address that. Let's address the guy that's the thief that's, that's coming to worship. He doesn't say get rid of him. Right? He says, no longer steal, but rather let him labor, do some honest work with his own hands so that, and not, and, and being very different, very countercultural to us. One of the ultimate reasons for him to work and make a living is to share with anyone who's in need. It's just automatic for Paul. If this guy has met Jesus and he's being a disciple, we want to teach him that thou shalt not steal. (laughs) And then we want to develop him so that he learns to work using his own hands, just being a good laborer. That's going to naturally bring resources into his life and want him to understand the goal of those resources is to help others in need. All right, just... Paul's got a constantly a developmental perspective, taking people from here to there. So just flip to the front of week six just for a minute. I want you to see, as we think through our BCO, um, how historically good our BCO is. So Jay Aspinwall Hodge related uh, to Charles Hodge and uh, the other Hodges uh, at Princeton Seminary. Um, he wrote a book called What is Presbyterian Law in 1882, which is a big, big root of our BCO. Basically, how do, how do Presbyterians rightly govern themselves? What does it really mean to be a Presbyterian in a, in a formal sense? And so at one point, he asks and answers the question, what are the duties of deacons? This is from 1882. The duties of deacons are to take care of the poor and to distribute among them the collections which may be raised for their use. This includes visitation of those in need, inquiring into their real wants, 
discernment. Not their shallow wants, but their real image bearer wants. Look at this next line. What does it mean to be a deacon? Helping them, the poor, to obtain work and comforting them. And being church officers as deacons are, they should always unite with temporal relief, spiritual consolation. So I'm giving you material relief, but I know that if you need material relief, you've got emotional needs. So I'm going to give you spiritual consolation, instruction, and prayer. Okay, so flip back over now. Here's a model I've put before our diaconate it a few times. And so, brothers, I commit it to you one more time. Um, and, and, and it is my job as the pastor to pray and teach the Bible and give you big, big, big ideas. And it's your job, men full of Holy Spirit and wisdom, to press it into reality. But here's a model, a big picture model, when we're dealing with people who are wrestling with actual poverty. It isn't enough to relieve them. But there must be a commitment of God's people who are recipients of God's grace and recipients of God's wisdom and recipients, recipients of many resources. There must be a commitment on our part to see these people developed because they are made in God's image. And they must grow and mature into the kind of people who have something to share with those in need. And the real dream is that people that we might relieve tomorrow get developed in a relationship with us, and we develop by our relationship with them, and they become our partners. Now, it's just absolutely obvious and intuitive, isn't it, that if you're doing ministry with the poor and among the poor, that people that grew up in poverty and have experienced poverty themselves and who've grown in wisdom, that they are, when they're living in maturity and sober-mindedness, they're your best partners. Because they understand poverty culture. They understand the shame that people live with day in and day out. They understand the struggles. It's not a theory to them. And so when people that you relieve then get developed, they become amazing partners. Think about the history of our own church. Think about people in our church who went through horrible seasons where their lives fell apart. You moved around them with love and compassion. Jesus used you to keep them afloat in a very hard season. Are any of those people some of our greatest ministry partners today? Oh, yeah. We rely on those partners week in and week out. And so that's a paradigm that we need to grow into. Okay, BCO, chapter 9, verse 2, because i got to hurry up. It is the duty of deacons to minister to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless, and to any who may be in distress. So flip over. It is their duty also, I love these next three lines, to develop the grace of liberality in the members of the church. Okay. In two years, Covenant Prez could take up offerings in a completely new way. We may never need to, but we could because the diaconate said, it's our job. It's developmental. It's our job to develop the grace of liberality in the members of the church. It's our job as a diaconate to inspire the congregation to give to these important things. 
And as much as we like that weekly offering as part of our worship, we're never going to stop doing that because that's a, a significant part of worship. We also want to do these other three things. Robbie, let's get that done because we have a vision to stir up, to develop the liberality of the church. So yes, I just told you deacons, it's your job to make our whole church more liberal in this sense. Generous is what this word means, to help this church be increasingly generous, to, defy, to devise effective methods of collecting the gifts of the people. And it's fine to inherit one. What we're doing might just be totally sufficient. And then to distribute these gifts among the object to which objects to which they are contributed. Okay, let me say a quick word about proactive ministry. When we think about God's call upon us to care for people who are living in various types of poverty, we, we, you can put approaches, this is huge 40,000 foot overly simplified, but it matters in two camps. You can be reactive the rest of your life and wait for the train wrecks and respond to them. And then 99% of what we will do is this relief only. Because the wheels came off, the train went off the track, everyone's hair is on fire, get the hose, get the band-aids, we did it. And, and you can live in reactive mode forever. And you'll probably do mostly relief work. But you also can have a strategy and a plan to be proactive. And that's why the work of Team One, led by the Hogwoods, is going to be so beneficial to this whole team. Because they're learning more and more, and they're going to teach us about what's true about poverty in our city and in our region. And when we understand it better, then we can actually we can make proactive plans to move toward pockets of poverty as opposed to only reacting to uh, crises. So just a thought there. Um, and that's one reason we have four different teams, which I'm not going to spend time on because I have to hustle. Now... If you're a deacon, and this is the third time you've heard all this from me, something very similar to this, and now you're hearing it in this room with all these other people, do you want to kick me? Are you exhausted? Are you like, oh my gosh, Holt came here to kill us? If you feel that tension that this calling feels like maybe bigger than I signed up for, I want to read the end of BCO chapter 9 to you. It's paragraph 7. And it's a lot like Act 6. It is often expedient. Very frequently, it makes very good sense. It's a very good plan that the session of of a church should select and appoint godly men and women of the congregation to assist the deacons. Why would they need that? Because it's a lot of work. In the same list, caring for the sick, the widows, the orphans, the prisoners, and others who may be in any distress or need. This section of the BCO 9.7 assumes leadership, assumes activity, assumes organized proactivity. It's wise. All right, there we go. Thank you for being here for Deacon Training and for God, His people, and the poor. So here's what we're going to do tonight. You're going to go not into groups, but into your four teams is team one going to be here? Hogwood Center, right here. Team two, Ashley, you like that corner again? Team two there. Team three, are you going outside this room again? Where's team three people? Well, that's team, team, you're in team two territory, so 
Um, go wherever you want, team three, and I'll come find you. And team four, where, where's team four going to be? Up here in this corner. All right. Hey, here's what I want you to do. At least for the first couple of minutes, because I actually finished on time, make sure you talk a little bit about the scripture you had, your homework for today of reading scripture, and fold that into your present work. And go. Go.